Good morning, Disciples Church. My name is Seth Hahn. Would you please stand and join me in today's scripture reading, which comes from 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 1. <clears throat> this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you, so that you may not sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Seth, for reading that for us and for letting us enjoy your velvety tones. <laughs> um, good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to see you. Thank you so much for being with us here in worship. A special welcome to you if you are visiting with us today. Uh, my name is Dave Hom, and I am one of the pastors here at Disciples Church, and it is my great privilege today to be able to open God's Word with and for you. We are continuing in our series in First John. So during first grade and then part of second grade, I went to a Catholic grade school in Milwaukee. And on certain school days, I would need to go with my classmates to confession. I was really young, and I was not raised understanding the Catholic tradition, though my dad was raised Catholic. That's not necessarily how I was raised. So I didn't really understand what was happening in the mysterious wooden box until I got older and I better understood how Catholics view the confession book. When I would go in there, I would occasionally have a hard time coming up with things to confess, and I would either speak just somewhat generically, or I would honestly make stuff up, because I couldn't think of anything. And I bet that I was not, and I am not, the only one who does that occasionally. But here is the thing that I came to understand as I got older about confession in that particular tradition. Only upon your itemized confession and the absolution of the attending priest, along with your recitation of certain prayers and completion of tasks given to you by that priest, were you assured of forgiveness. And when you sinned again, you'd have to head right back to the confessional and do that all over again. And the problem with all of that is the Bible. The problem with all of that is the Bible. When we demand that Christians confess that way or participate in confession in a similar manner, specifically to be forgiven or to maintain one's right standing before God, we show ourselves to not have understood nor believed the gospel. And sadly, that issue is not exclusive to the modern church. 
As Jonathan mentioned last week, there were those within the churches of Asia Minor 2,000 years ago who had a confused or a false understanding of who Jesus was, of what he came to do, and the gospel that he established in his life, death, and resurrection. And we will look deeper into all of that as we go into our passage this morning. So in the first four verses of chapter 1, John wanted to make three things abundantly clear. And we looked at this last week. First, that the one that he was referring to was eternal, existed before all things, and was, therefore, God. Second, that this eternal and divine being had to come to earth as a man. A man who could be and was seen and heard and touched. John himself had done so. And he testified to it. And thirdly, that this man, Jesus Christ, was and is the Son of God the Father. With whom the apostles and all who believe in him have eternal fellowship with God and with one another. That's what verses 1-4 through in 1 John here are about. And the beginning of this epistle is reminiscent in some ways of the beginning of John's gospel. So John wrote three letters here at the end of the Bible, but he also wrote one of the four gospels. And he makes similar assertions in his gospel about Christ's dual nature, that he was both God and man. And he describes what Jesus did, both in glory with his Father as well as here on earth. And how all of mankind, through faith in him, could enter into a relationship with God. John's gospel begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? You could tell that this is the same author. And where verse 5 of today's text begins is precisely where verse 5 of John's gospel finishes off. Say it in 1 John verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John had a message to share, but it was not his own. It was and is the message the disciples heard from Jesus himself, a direct and a personal revelation from God to the apostles and then consequently to all of us. And that message begins with who God is. God is light, he says, and in him is no darkness at all. And as we learned in the first chapter of John's Gospel from what I read earlier, light is often used as a metaphor to life. Verse 4 of that first chapter says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Conversely, darkness is a metaphor for death. So when John says that Jesus is light, He is saying that Jesus personifies life. 
The interesting thing about light and life is that their respective opposites, namely darkness and death, only exist in the absence of light and life. Darkness and death only exist in the absence of light and life. They are not powers unto themselves. I mean, what is darkness except for the absence of light? What is death other than the absence of life? So to be in spiritual darkness and spiritual death is to be without Christ. Because he is light and he is life. And according to John, Jesus came to do away with darkness and death. Through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. Still, our life here on earth is in what we would call the already and the not yet of what Christ has accomplished and will accomplish. In one sense, friends, Christ's light and life has already defeated darkness and death, but the fullness of his victory has not yet come. But that day of victory, my friends, is coming. A day when Jesus will return to gather his own, to cast Satan and his demons into the lake of fire and establish a new heaven and a new earth where we who are his reign and rule with him forever. A day where death and darkness will be no more and he himself will be the only light we have and the only light that we need. That is what we who are in Christ have to look forward to. Now, having established who the light is in verse 5, and therefore who life is and where life is found, John continues in verse 6, saying, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. What we can know from the churches that John is writing to based on this verse is that it is possible to claim to have life it is possible to claim to be in the light. It is possible to claim a relationship with Christ, but to be mistaken. It is possible to claim to have life and be in the light and claim a relationship with Christ, but to be mistaken at best or to be a liar at worst. So let's, let's pause quickly here and define very clearly, the two terms that we find in these first two verses, light and darkness. This is how we're going to be thinking about it as we move forward. To say one is in the light is to say that one is alive in Christ and forever in fellowship with him. And to say one is in darkness is to say that one is spiritually dead and separated from Christ. It really is that simple. Listen to John 8, verse 12 from the NIV, where Jesus himself says, Listen, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, listen, will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So according to this passage that I just read, who has the light? Who has the life of Christ? Who will never walk in darkness? 
It is those who follow Jesus. Those who are in Christ. In other words, Christians. Now, John uses a very specific action word in verse 6. It is the same word that Jesus used in John 8, verse 12, which I just read for you. It is the word walk. Now, as we know, the word walk is to be in motion. It's a continual and a habitual action. So, to walk in darkness is to live a life apart from Christ and to be lost. So what John is saying is that a person who claims to know and love Jesus, Jesus who is the light, but walks in darkness, meaning that they are lost and apart from Christ, that person is deceived and is a liar. A person who claims to know and love Jesus who is the light, but walks in darkness, is deceived and is a liar. That's what John says. But let's be more specific and contextual about 1 John here. The churches John was writing to in this letter were being infiltrated by Gnostics. In every church throughout history, there have been three groups of people. True believers, non-believers, and there have been those who claim to be believers, but are not. And that last group, those who claim to be believers but are not, at least within the churches of Asia Minor that John wrote to, were called Gnostics. And Jonathan, as I mentioned, shared in great detail who the Gnostics were last week. If you didn't get to listen to that message, I encourage you to go back and listen to be able to get a a bigger view of that. But as an overview, the word Gnostic is taken from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And Gnostics believed, among other things, that they had a special and a superior knowledge. A so-called knowledge that said that the flesh is evil and that only the spirit is good. And this belief of the Gnostics was problematic in at least two ways. First, Gnostics did not believe that Jesus came in the flesh. Gnostics did not believe that Jesus came in the flesh. That is why John made it abundantly clear in verses 1 through 4 of this letter that Jesus did, in fact, come in the flesh, and that John himself, among others, saw him, heard him, and touched him. My friends, to deny Christ's humanity or to deny his divinity is to reject who he has been revealed as by God's Spirit in his holy word. And it is instead to create a savior of your own making who does not exist and who cannot save. Secondarily, Gnostics believed that because the flesh was evil and sin was only a problem of the flesh, sin itself was an illusion and it was unimportant. So they denied that Christ came in the flesh and they denied that sin mattered. So as you read this letter, remember that among those in its original reading and its hearing were those who falsely believed that Christ did not come in the flesh, that sin did not matter, but that they somehow were in fellowship with him. That's the setting as this letter is being read. And for us to understand that background of this letter, 1 John, 
is very, very helpful in making sense of much of what it says. So let's move on to verses 7 through 10, where we will honestly spend the bulk of our time. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Cards on the table, my friends. Cards on the table. I think verses 8 and 9 in particular are some of the most misunderstood and miscommunicated verses in all of Scripture. In that, we misunderstand who John was speaking to, what he was saying, and why. And then we misapply those things to the wrong audience. So, what I am about to share may surprise you. It might. But I also hope that it encourages you and that it sets you free to live a deeper, truer, and more abundant life in and with Christ. I am going to make my case based on many other places in Scripture, and I'm going to appeal to you with what I believe are logical and rational conclusions to that end. And whether or not you reject or believe what I am going to share for the remainder of our time, let it be. Would you let it be because the Spirit of God has convinced you of what His Word says? Let it be because the Spirit of God has convinced you of what His Word says. Because what I have to say is of very little importance. But what God says is of the ultimate importance. So John finishes up verse 6 by addressing those who claim a relationship with Christ but are deceived. In verse 7, however, he takes a short break from all of that and he speaks to those who are in Christ. Those who are in the light. And he states that those who have been saved by Christ, living with and in his light, have fellowship with God the Father, with God the Son, and with God the Holy Spirit. And we also have fellowship with all those who have been saved and brought into God's light with us. That's called the church, my friends. More than that, according to verse 7, and then again we'll look at in verse 9, as those walking in and with the light of Christ, we can be assured that Jesus' blood has cleansed us from all sin. How many sins does verse 7 say we are cleansed of? All. All. And if all sin and if all unrighteousness has been cleansed, how much is left for you and I to deal with? Verses 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, I've shared with you my personal experience growing up uh, or having a couple years in Catholic grade school. That really is the limitation 
of my personal experience in Catholicism. But sadly, we Protestants, non-Catholics, have found our own way to enter into similar practices as our Catholic friends for the purpose of the forgiveness of sins. In that, we ourselves encourage and demand and or participate in certain traditions or rituals, or we teach specific Bible verses incorrectly or out of context that lead people to believe that as Christians, they are not yet fully forgiven, that there is more to be done and that it is they who need to do it. We encourage the itemization of every sin, hoping that God will respond in kind and forgive us. My friends, if you believe that something that you do is going to cause God to forgive you more, or love you more, or like you more, or be less angry with you, or draw nearer to you, you misunderstand the cross of Christ and its gospel. When Jesus Christ cried out from the cross, it is finished, he meant what he said. All of your sins and all of mine, if you know Christ, were in the future when Christ died and he didn't miss one of them. And if that is true, what in the world are we doing asking God to do what he has already done in the cross of Christ? Now, full disclosure, there are a few arguments, potentially one of your own, against this understanding of today's passage. And I will try to address some of the most common ones. The first big argument against this view is this. Well, verse 9 tells us to confess our sins. And there are other examples in Scripture of people confessing their sins to God or asking God to forgive them. Verse 9 does say that. And there are other verses. But I would argue that context is critical in each case. Context is critical in each of these cases. My friends, in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, a new covenant was established. A covenant in which sins were dealt with and taken away once for all so that the life that God gives could in fact be eternal. And every instance of confession of sin or asking God to forgive, either in the Old Testament or in the Gospels themselves, is found under the Old Covenant. Every instance that you find of confession that's found in the Old Testament or in the Gospels is under the Old Covenant. Jesus himself taught under the Old Covenant because the New Covenant was not established until he died and rose again. The Old Covenant was where sins were dealt with via confession and the sacrificial system. The Old Covenant was rooted in burnt offerings and sin offerings and the blood of the bulls and goats. And it was not rooted in the blood of God's precious and sinless Son. And every instance of confession or a call to confess in the Old Testament or the Gospels is a look forward to the cross that had not yet occurred. But 
In the cross, we see sin judged one time in full, past, present, and future, on the shoulders of our Lord and Savior. Do you know, my friends, that you will not find, you will not find one command for Christians to confess their sins to God after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. You will not find one. And the only other place under the new covenant where we can find Christians practicing or commanding confession is in James 5. And that verse tells us to confess our sins one to another, not to God. Nowhere in any of the apostles' writings do you see confession for the forgiveness of sins in the life of a Christian commanded or practiced except, it seems, in this verse, 1 John 1.9. But, for argument's sake, let's pretend that verse 9 is in fact telling Christians to confess their sins to be forgiven. Let's pretend that, Okay. That assertion, honestly, presumes a handful of very difficult premises for us to overcome. First and foremost, it mocks the cross of Jesus Christ. It mocks the cross of Christ. As Christians, to say that confession is necessary for our sins to be forgiven is to imply that the cross of Christ was insufficient in dealing with our sin and that Jesus was lying when he cried out from the cross, it is finished leaving us to look into the face of the battered and crucified face of Jesus and say, you could have just stayed home. We've got it. We'll confess him. Second, that view of verse 9 makes us the initiator and therefore makes God the responder. We did this, right? We confessed. So you, God must do this in response. My friends, anything, anything that is conditional in the Christian life is counter to the cross. Anything that is conditional in the Christian life is counter to the cross. God is not a Zoltar machine. He is not a celestial gumball machine that responds to our initiations. I mean, who was it that initiated the cross of Christ? Was it we who asked for it? Is there anyone who on their own has understood that their biggest problem is sin and death and that the only solution was the sacrificial death of God's Son leading to the forgiveness and eternal life? Or has God, by His Word and by His Spirit, revealed those truths to us and given us a regenerate heart that is capable of confessing and repenting, and believing. Who initiated? The third problem with that view of verse 9 of, and, and confession in general is it presumes that we are aware of every sin that we have committed. In order for that to work, we have to be aware of every sin we've committed, right? But what if we're not? I mean, Romans 14 alone tells us that everything that is not of faith is sin. Based on that definition alone, I would argue that we are much more sinful than we would admit or realize. And then finally, 
That view of verse 9 presumes that we would be faithful and cognizant enough to confess every sin. Not only that we would be aware of them, but that we would be faithful and cognizant enough to confess them all. I mean, let's say that it was possible to be aware of every sin. What if we forgot to confess one? Or what if we sinned and then we died before we got to confess that sin? What then? I mean, do you see the trouble in this way of thinking about dealing with sin and salvation? Do you see how it minimizes the power of the blood and the sacrifice of Christ? My friends, rejoice and be glad. This is not how salvation works. Salvation is totally, exclusively, and completely an act of God's grace on our behalf. He initiated all of it, and we can only respond through faith. And that leads us to the second most common argument about 1 John 1.9. Says, while we are fully forgiven in the cross of Christ, if we don't confess our sins to God, we'll be out of fellowship or intimacy with Him. Who's heard that one? Who's thought that one? Well, first, the Bible says over and over again that the wages of sin is death, not broken fellowship with God. What you and I deserve for our sin is death. According to Romans 5, our fellowship with God was indeed broken by the fall, by the sin of Adam. But it was fully restored to us in Christ, who is called the second Adam. My friends, read all of Romans 5 today. Because what you will discover is that it is Christ who was rejected and put out of fellowship with God the Father on the cross, so that you and I would only know acceptance. Do you want to know who was put out of fellowship with God the Father? It was Jesus on our behalf. As one author put it, because Jesus was willing to endure the terrible pain of the Father's rejection, you and I will never, ever again see the back of God's head. We'll never, ever again see the back of God's head. So, the first point that I had made was that the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, not broken fellowship with God. And the second point is that you are not going to be able to find a Bible passage within the New Covenant that says Christians fall in and out of fellowship with God. That is a man-made idea. Rather, we are told that it is only because of and in Christ that we have fellowship with God at all. If you have fellowship with God, it is because of Christ in you. And that in Christ, by his spirit, God is and will be with us forever. And never ever leave us or forsake us. Those are Jesus' words, his promise to you and me. So as I thought about why we would potentially think that we fall in and out of fellowship with God when we sin. I wonder if it is possible, my friends, that we are ascribing unto God how we feel when we're sinned against. How we feel when we're sinned against. Meaning, we still feel upset long after someone sins against us, so he probably does too, right? I mean, if I'm still a little bit upset about it, I bet you God is too. 
And then it's probably going to take some time and some work on our part for God to like and trust us again. But my friends, thankfully, God is not like us. And he does not deal with us the way that we unfortunately deal with one another. God saw all our unrighteousness before Christ died, and he chose to love us anyway. He is outside of time. Do you realize that time is from here to here, and God sits over it and sees all of it? He does not see it linearly the way that you and I do. He is outside of time and therefore saw every sin before one of them was committed. And in one righteous act, he punished all sin in the person of his son. And now, in God's eyes, we are just as holy, spotless, blameless, righteous, loved, and liked as Jesus is. Amen. Now here's the third most common argument about this view of 1 John 1, 9. Well, if we tell Christians that they don't need to confess their sins to be forgiven, we're just giving them a license to sin. Well, I guess my response to that would be, do you really think we need one? I mean, I, I think Christians are sinning just fine without a would-be license to do so. My friends, it, it is not the law. It is not the law that leads a Christian to obedience. But it is the love of God in Christ that does. Rules do not lead Christians to obedience, but the love of God in Christ does. The transformation of the heart and the affections does. Beholding Jesus is what leads to behavior change. So, Assuming that you're still with me, <laughs> a great question to ask at this point is this. Okay, well, then who are these verses and these commands written for? And it's really simple. I bet you could give the answer. They're meant for unbelievers. They're meant for unbelievers. For those who wrongly claim to be without sin. For those who believe that sin is inconsequential or for those who recognize their sin and want to be fully and freely forgiven through faith in Christ. As one commentator said it, John's call in verse 9 is not for believers to repeatedly ask God for forgiveness, but for non-believers who think they are believers to realize their folly, to admit their sin for the first time, to repent and to turn to God. That's who 1 John 1 9 is written for. So if you are hearing my voice and you have not yet loved, trusted, and followed Jesus, verse 9 is for you. Verse 9 is for you. By God's grace, realize your folly. Admit your sin. Turn away from your life of unbelief and turn instead to Christ. But, if you are hearing my voice and you do, in fact, know, love, and trust Jesus, understand that John is not speaking to you in these few verses. And I think that there are at least three great reasons to believe that that is so. It seems like there's a lot of lists in my message today, doesn't it? A lot of one, two, threes. I don't know why. <laughs> Here's one more. <laughs> 
First, according to John 8, 12, Christians will never walk in darkness because they have the light and the life of Christ. So verse 6, in particular, cannot apply to a believer. Second, it cannot be said of a Christian, you cannot say of a Christian that the truth is not in them, or that God's word is not in them, as verse 8 and 10 would suggest. When, according to John 1, Christ is the Logos, he is the word of God. When, according to John 14, Christ is the truth, and he permanently indwells those who are his. So how could you say of a Christian that Christ is not in them, that the truth is not in them, or that the word is not in them, when Christ is the word, and he is the truth? Do you notice, by the way, that in verses 6 and 8 and 10, truth or the lack thereof is really the big issue that John's addressing? I mean, this world has really lost its mind when it comes to truth, hasn't it? (laughs) This world has lost its mind when it comes to truth. But my friends, apart from the truth of God and apart from the word of God, which is Christ himself, no one is saved. No one is saved. Third and finally, Christians, my friends, do not deny sin. Christians do not negate sin, and they do not make light of sin. Rather, they recognize that Christ absorbed and became sin on their behalf, so that they would become the righteousness of God. The cross of Christ is all about our sin. So if we were without sin, what was the point of Christ suffering on the cross? Friends, the fact is, the fact is, that a person who walks in darkness or who rejects the word and the truth of God or claims to have no sin is not a Christian. Someone who would claim those things is not a Christian, plain and simple. And what that person needs to do is confess and repent just as John instructs them to do so. And in so doing, What does scripture say happens? Verses 7 and 9 say that God is faithful and that he is just to cleanse them from all sin and from all unrighteousness. One time for all time. Now we've talked about this before, but I think it's worth revisiting as we close. The English word here, confess, is the Greek word homo logeo. Homo means the same, And logeo means to speak or to say. So in other words, to confess means that we say the same thing that God says. When we confess that Christ is Lord, we are agreeing with God who has declared that to be so. When we confess our sin, we are agreeing with God. And we are saying about our sin the same thing that God says about it. To acknowledge that our thoughts and our words and our deeds are in fact sinful. Without justifying it, without pointing fingers and blaming someone or something else for it. Without giving it some cool, different, soft name. Or pretending that it's not offensive to God. My friends, confession is agreeing with God and it does not require a long list with great specificity. What it requires is a heart 
mind, and spirit that recognizes and says unto God, what I said, thought, or did there is sinful. No excuses. That's confession. So if I have not been clear to this point, let me try and be so. I am not saying, I am not saying that Christians should not confess. Rather, I'm saying that our confession is not going to make us more forgiven or more loved than we already are in Christ. Listen to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and by the way, everyone does and will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Disciples Church, when we sin, we have an advocate, one who pleads our cause and has accomplished on our behalf what we could not. Our advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, stands in the gap for you and for me. So rather than confessing for the purpose of finding more forgiveness, rather than asking God to forgive us over and over and over again, Let's come before him, agreeing that we have sinned with the greatest assurance that we have already been forgiven. And then praise and thank our Heavenly Father for the cross of Christ that made it so. To praise our Father in Heaven for the cross of Christ that paid for every sin before you committed it and before you confessed it. And then finally, Ask him in his grace and his mercy for help. Help and for the continuation of the work of transformation and sanctification in your life until you stand before him and sin is no more. Celebrate the good news of the gospel. Rest, my friends, in the gospel. Because it is only in resting in the gospel that we will find the freedom and the confidence and the humility to agree with God about our sins, the sins that he reveals to us by his spirit. Only through resting in the gospel will we be able to go before him. Will we be able to go before him and enjoy the total forgiveness and the unbroken fellowship that we have been given through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My friends, we must stop doubting what Scripture has made clear and believe. We have to put aside our self-salvation projects and live the life that we live in this body by faith in the Son of God who loves us and gave himself for us, knowing that through his inexhaustible and radical grace, we are totally forgiven, we are utterly saved, and we are always and completely his. That is the good news that we have to share today, my friends. That is the good news that we get to believe and that we get to tell. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess and, and we admit this morning that we make too little far too little of the grace that you have extended to us and the love that you have shown us in Christ. In our arrogance, we believe that we are able to add what Christ fully accomplished on the cross, and we act as though you love the way that we love and forgive as we forgive. 
rather than resting in the truth that we can only love and forgive because you first loved and forgave us. Help us. God, convince us of what is true and help us reject what is error. Let us find freedom in the gospel and live lives by faith in Jesus that are worthy of that gospel. Would you make new the hearts of those who have not yet believed and cause them to agree with you about their sin and receive by faith the life of Christ? Then would you assure them that they are eternally forgiven and forever cleansed? Our sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. We praise you, Lord, for this wonderful truth and this indescribable gift. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.